0: Well, it's January the 6th, and so the sermon's called Life's Greatest Resolution. You almost have to begin by asking the question, how many of you made New Year's resolutions this year? Put the hands up, keep them up. I I obviously can't see you where you're at, but if statistics are of any value, about a third of the people in in the room where you're sitting should have hands in the air. That's roughly about how many people make uh, New Year's resolutions. My hand was up, by the way. Just for illustrative purposes, I am generally not a New Year's resolution kind of person. I'm not really a goal-setting kind of a person. I probably should be more than I am. And so setting goals for January 1st is not really a thing that I do. Though I will say, I actually, this year, maybe for the first time, had specific changes that I imagined wanting to make in my life. Starting January 1st, I decided this was, you know, the week that those things were going to begin. But that's, that's not normal for me. Though, if you do make New Year's resolutions and you make them faithfully, you need to know that even though you might be in the minority, you are a part of a long-standing human tradition. This isn't a recent innovation, you know, invented by industries, weight loss, and gym memberships, and whatever, that want to make money off you at the beginning of the year. New Year's resolutions actually go back 2,175 years to about 153 uh, before the Common Era in the city of Rome. The Romans invented New Year's resolutions. They, They were the ones who decided that the new year would begin on January 1st. In fact, they were the ones who named the month of January, January and they named the month of january after the god janus who was their god that had two faces the god janus had one face that looked forward and one face that looked backward and they thought what perfect symbol for the first day of the first month of the year for a t- excuse me for a time when more unlike any other time or more than any other time It seems particularly appropriate to spend a moment looking backwards, like Jeff kind of led us through last week, thinking about the year that was, reflecting on who we were. And they would offer sacrifices and they would ask Janice for forgiveness for the people they were in the year before. And then it's a moment for looking ahead to the year that's coming, to the person I want to be in the coming year for the successes that I hope for. And they would bring offerings to Janice and they would pray for the blessings of Janice going into the new year that they could experience greater success in the things that they cared about in life. It was the Romans almost 2200 years ago that invented this annual rebooting of life. This idea that you could circle a date on a calendar and say, as of this date, everything's gonna be different. It's like those old um, quit smoking commercials. You may remember if you're old enough to remember watching TV and media where you had commercials. um, There was this ad campaign about quitting smoking and they didn't say, hey, everyone should quit now. They said, pick a date, circle it on the calendar and that's gonna be the date when you begin to change. Because they know there's, there's... psychological value to initiating change in that sort of intentional way, especially at these symbolic transitions. I I read a study this last week about uh, a Google search study where they, where scientists looked at people's Google searches and they noticed that people search for diets and health plans and gym memberships and financial planning and all those things. They generally, those searches spike on the first of the week, the first of the month and the first day of the year. People look for symbolic beginnings to become new beginnings. That's what it's all about. In fact, I remember when I was younger, I used to go golfing with my dad a lot. And there would be times when my dad's golf game wouldn't be going very well. And he would hand me his scorecard and the pencil, you know, after the seventh hole or whatever. And he'd say, well, I shot a seven, but... He says, uh, after you write seven, I want you to draw a line between the seventh score and the eighth score. Just draw a big, dark, vertical line on the scorecard. And I asked him, why why am I drawing this line? He said, because my game's starting over. This is where my game begins again. Sadly, my my dad's game often didn't improve after drawing the line. And statistically, uh, our lives don't necessarily improve after January 1st is what the statistics tell us. I I read some statistics this week. Uh, There was a study done last year. People were interviewed on December 2017 and then January 2018 and then every month all the way to June 2018 to track their progress with their uh, New Year's resolutions. And by June of 2018, 6% of people had said they had stuck to their New Year's resolution. 14% had said they had kind of stuck uh, to their resolutions and 80% were just done. (laughs) In fact, actually, uh, statistically, those 80% have generally failed by February 1st. So if you made New Year's resolutions, 80% of you are just three weeks away from never having to think about them again. So you're welcome. The interesting thing about that study, actually, in in December 2017, they asked people, how many of you planned to make New Year's resolutions? And 68% of people said they planned to make New Year's resolutions. In January 2018, one month later, they said, how many of you made New Year's resolutions? And 63% said they did not make New Year's resolutions. Half the people who were planning to gave up even before January 1st. Because for whatever reason, that change seemed impossible or unimportant or uh, like they didn't know how they were going to do it or whatever. People uh, generally don't find a great deal of success in changing their life by making goals on January 1st. Psychologists say there's probably three main reasons. Um, Number one, people get overwhelmed at the enormity of the goal, at the enormity of the task. They get overwhelmed at the uh, enormous amount of pressure they feel or the amount of pressure they place on themselves. Uh, secondly, they say people get discouraged. They don't see results fast enough and then they begin to second guess whether or not they're doing it the right way or whether or not whether this is gonna even work, whether they should have done this in the first place. Or thirdly, psychologists say Many people aren't just, they're not ready for a change. They don't care about the change. They make a commitment because they feel like they should. right? I should lose a few. I should save a few dollars or whatever. But they don't actually want to. They don't actually care. And because they don't value it, they don't follow through. And it's this kind of tragic annual cycle of people wanting to make meaningful changes that allow them to experience success in the things they care most about in life and not doing it. The interesting thing is that this idea that we have the power to make meaningful changes in our lives and experience greater success in the things we care most about is actually a deeply biblical and spiritual idea. The Bible shares that ideal. In fact, there's an entire book of the Bible called the book of Proverbs that is written precisely about that idea that if you, excuse me, if you made different decisions, you could experience greater success. It says this in the book of Proverbs, chapter one, verse one, this is how it starts. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. This is what the book is for for gaining wisdom and instruction, for understanding words of insight, for receiving instruction and prudent behavior, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to those who are simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning. Let the discerning get guidance. The book is for understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and the riddles of the wise. As you read the book, what you begin to discover is that by and large, it's filled with what we now call cliches, little kind of pithy sayings that are meant to inspire you to think differently about things. It's, you know, like 300 years ago, Benjamin Franklin wrote a book called Poor Richard's Almanac, and it's just kind of filled with Benjamin Franklin's little tidbits of wisdom, you know, tart words win no friends you'll catch more flies with a teaspoon of honey than you will with a gallon of vinegar. That's where we get the cliche, you catch more flies with honey than vinegar. Uh, at least those of us who are middle-aged and above have that cliche. <laughs> but it's this sort of, this kind of little tidbit of wisdom that is meant through its poetic nature, symbolic nature, whatever, to expose the truth about something, to make you think differently, to to tell you how the way things really are. And that's what basically the whole book of Proverbs is. It's these little cliches that's meant to instruct us. And the whole point of the book is, if you will allow yourself to be taught this wisdom, if you commit yourself to learning discernment, how to, how to discern between better and worse, between good and bad, to have that keen sense of judgment, if you can develop common sense, if you can um, learn how to make a plan and stick to it, then you can actually begin to experience greater success in the things that you care most about. The book of Proverbs is filled with Proverbs about relationships, friendships, family. Proverbs about finance and work life and how to become a person of influence and the ways to leverage your leadership and how to raise children and all the things that people care about in life. And it says actually, you know, in the, in the one sentence it says for gaining guidance. It comes from the, the metaphor. It's, it, literally, it's, it says to know the ropes. It's the metaphor of the person who steers the ship by controlling the ropes of the sails. That if you can learn wisdom, if you can learn the ropes of living life wisely, you can guide the ship successfully to where you want it to go. The, the one, I would say, a couple of differences between the way the Proverbs think about achieving greater success in life and the way we do it with New Year's resolutions. The, the first is that it's not at all goal-oriented. It's not like I'm going to lose 10 pounds by June or I'm going to, you know, if you're a spiritual person, I'm going to read the Bible every day, you know, this year. Or it's not like I'm going to eat better and exercise three times a week. It's not goal-setting it's about accomplishing, it's not about accomplishing goals, it's about becoming a certain kind of person. Right in the middle of the section that I read, it says, this is the center of the whole thing. It says, for doing what is right and just and fair. For becoming the kind of person who will do what's right. In other words, who will behave faithfully towards God and towards the community around you. Do the it's doing the right thing in God's eyes, in the eyes of the people around you. Doing what is just. It, it, the word literally means to make something straight that's crooked. To, to straighten out the crooked things of the world. To, to make right the wrong things of the world. The, the third word is fair, but it should probably be translated with integrity. To be a person of your word. To do what you say to fulfill your duty, to live out your obligations and your responsibilities, to be somebody who is reliable and trustworthy. Proverbs says that if if you want to experience more success in life, it requires the kind of wisdom that will train you to be the sort of person who lives in a way that is right and just and with integrity. The other difference, I think, is that it's not about setting goals as much as it is engaging in a process. Psychologists will say one of the reasons why people fail at setting their achieving their New Year's resolutions is because they focus on the accomplishment of the goal rather than the process of becoming a person who values living that way. And the Proverbs say this, this is for the, the what, what is the word, for the, young and for the simple, for those who are inexperienced who need to learn. But it's also for the wise to add to their wisdom. It's a lifelong process of becoming the right kind of person who can exercise wisdom so that you experience greater success in life. But probably the biggest difference between the sort of success that the Proverbs promotes and the kind of success That we attempt in our New Year's resolutions is actually the foundation of the whole thing. In Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, this is what it says The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. This is the place. That you begin. This is the place that you start. It's not step one that you accomplish. And then cross off the list. And move on to step two. It's not the first thing in a list of things. When it says it is the beginning of knowledge. It means it is the core. It's the essence. It's the foundation of the whole thing. This is. This is the trajectory setting decision. That affects all the other decisions. The decision. The decision. To fear the Lord. It's like the first thing you do when you go on a road trip. My wife and I love to road trip. The first thing you do when you head out on a road trip is you program the GPS. And it's not like you say, okay, now the GPS is programmed. We can put it away and get on to the next thing we have to do, which is start driving. No, no, no. The programming of the GPS becomes the guiding force that carries you through all of the rest of the things that you have to do. It becomes the orientation that carries you towards the goal. So long as you never waver from it. The Proverbs say the most foundational, the most important, the most fundamental resolution you can make. If you want to experience, if you want to become the kind of person who makes wiser choices and experiences greater success in life is the decision to fear the Lord what does that mean? The word fear doesn't mean be afraid. One of the most frequent commands in the Bible is do not be afraid. We don't need to be afraid of God. Um, the word fear describes an attitude of reverent submission. In fact, there's another passage in the Bible earlier on, Deuteronomy chapter 10, that sort of fleshes out what the fear of the Lord looks like. Starting in verse 12, it says this. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God? What does that mean? To walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. The the fear of the Lord is this attitude of reverent submission that plays itself out. The the passage describes both an outer manifestation and an inner motivation. On the outside, what does it look like? Well, it looks like walking in obedience to God. One translation says walking in his ways, doing what Jesus would do, making the same decisions that God would make in your place, doing, doing what God wants you to do. It says, serving the Lord your God, making the accomplishment of God's agenda in the world, which is always, only ever, an agenda of love, making God's agenda of love your top priority in life. It talks about observing the Lord's commands commands about what it means to live in a relationship of worship to God, about what it means to be a person of character in community. What it means and what it looks like to fight for justice in the world. Uh, living in a reverent submission, the fear of the Lord, this, this reverent submission to God will manifest itself in those kinds of ways in a person's life. But you can, you can fake all of that. You can just go through the motions. The fear of the Lord begins with an inner motivation that comes out in the passage too. That, that the idea that you have this reverent submission for god right it's fear in the same way that we quote unquote fear our parents or fear our teachers we we acknowledge our submission to their loving authority in our lives we acknowledge that god is god and we're not and we need to put our lives at his disposal but it comes from a place of love, it says, to love him from this place of intimacy and devotion and faithfulness towards God. And then it says that we serve him with all our heart and our soul. There's this sort of energy and this passion that consumes every part of our life. So what does it mean to fear the Lord? It means to be consumed with this passionate devotion to God that manifests itself in, um, in us in our lives, conforming our lives to the way he's called us to live. So it means to fear the Lord. I, I think it's significant, by the way, that the passage says it's the fear of the Lord rather than the fear of God. Um, that distinction is important. The Bible talks about God in two different ways. You can use the language of God, which is kind of the same sort of generic label that it is in English. It's not a name. It's not even really a title. It's just sort of a noun. It describes deities, right? And we apply it to all deities, irrespective of whose deities. The Hindus have gods and the Muslims have a God and the Jews have a God and Christians have a God. And we just use the same word to describe all those deities. It's just a noun. And in the Bible, the word God usually refers to God kind of in the cosmic sense as this all-powerful governing deity who's in control of the cosmos. That's one way to talk about God. That's not what the Bible means when it chooses instead to say the Lord. And if you're reading in a paper Bible, lots of times online too, it'll all be in capital. When you see the Lord in all capitals, that's actually translating the name of God. In the Bible, God has a name. His name is Yahweh. And God gives his name when the Bible uses God's name. And by the way, when I read the Bible and and it says the Lord in all capitals, I will often in my head, I will read to myself the word Yahweh, the name of God to remind myself That when the Bible uses the word Yahweh or the Lord, it's reminding us that God is a personal God who has revealed God's self to us by name, specifically through Jesus Christ. It's a God who is interested in being in relationship with us. You you share your name with somebody when you want to enter into a more intimate, more personal kind of relationship. If you only know somebody as Dr. So-and-so or Mr. So-and-so, and then one day they say, call me Barb, your relationship has just changed. You've now entered into a relationship that is personal and intimate. You've become something else. God gives us his name because he's inviting us into a relationship. Whenever God reveals God's self by name, Yahweh, he's always entering into relationship because he intends to save, to rescue people, to be for the people he's entering into relationship with. That's what, so it's. Fear of the Lord, not fear of God, this cosmic distant deity who's all powerful and in control of everything and who will stomp on you if you get it wrong. No, no, no. It's living in an attitude of reverent submission, of passionate devotion that manifests itself in living a life that aligns with who God is because God loves us. Because Yahweh wants to live in relationship with us and Yahweh wants us to love him back. One time in the Old Testament, uh, Moses, uh, one of the heroes of Israel, went to God and said, I want you to show me what you're exactly like. And Yahweh said, let me explain to you, I am Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God who's slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands And forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That's who I want to be in relationship with you. There's no reason to be afraid of God. But that is the kind of God that we could enter into a relationship of loving submission. Of passionate devotion that consumes our whole lives of, of loving intimacy that manifests itself in a life of, of, of walking in his ways and serving him, making his agenda our top priority for life, of obeying his commands when it comes to worshiping him and becoming a person of character and living for justice in the world. That's the kind of God you would want to enter into relationship with because According to the Proverbs, it's in relationship with that God that the wisdom begins to come that helps us become the certain kind of person who can make the sorts of choices that allow us to begin to experience greater success in life. In Proverbs 2 verse 6, it says this, For Yahweh gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He holds success in store for the upright. He is a shield to those whose way of life is blameless for he guards the course of the just and he protects the way of his faithful ones. The Bible says you enter into this relationship of loving submission, a passionate devotion to God in everything where he is the center and the priority of everything in your life and the wisdom about life begins to flow from him. And he begins He holds success in store. He begins to guide the lives of those who live that passionate devotion to him towards greater success in the things that they care most about in life. Now, I want to say a couple things. The first is this. God is not a self-help program. You do not enter into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ because you want to strike a deal so that God will make your life better. That's not how it works. God can't be manipulated that way. The way it works is that you enter into a relationship with God and allow your passionate devotion to consume all of your life. And he begins to change you by the power of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ into the kind of person who makes increasingly wise decisions, which means decisions which increasingly align with what God would want you to choose and the person that God would want you to be. And as the result, in general, life begins to go better. But the second thing I'll say is there's a lot of people in the room who are living a passionate devotion for Christ who can point to very specific times, maybe right now in your life where it's not going better. And I know that. There's probably three things I'd want to say and and maybe to three different kinds of circumstances. The first would be that the Proverbs are generally true but they're not promises the world doesn't always work out in a neat and tidy way where if you're devoted to god everything turns out in the end it's not a a rom-com in fact two books earlier than the book of proverbs is the book of job and there was nobody more passionately devoted To God than Job and his life went sideways and became a dumpster fire. And it's almost like the biblical writers are going out of their way to remind us that it doesn't always work out in a neat and tidy way. And part of the reason is number two. Because the world is filled with brokenness and evil. That there is unlove and anti-love at work in the world, in the lives of people around us that we can't control, in our own lives in ways that we can't control. There is, the Bible says, there is a power of evil at work in the world that is disinterested in us living a passionate devotion in our life with God. Um, sometimes the world is just random and chaotic. Probably the third thing I would say is that your story isn't over yet. That this may just be a season where God is inviting you into faithfulness in your passionate devotion in which you have to trust that he is walking with you even as you're walking with him, even though you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel just yet. But at the end of the day, the question for 2019 is not what goals are you going to set to make your life better. The question for 2019 is, in what ways are you going to draw yourself closer to God? In what ways are you going to lean into a deeper, more passionate devotion rooted in loving intimacy, a life of reverent submission where you will make God the center and the priority of everything in your life Trusting that in the process, he will begin to transform you through his son Jesus into the kind of person who can make better decisions about what it looks like to live your life in alignment with God's vision for you. Such that maybe this year, you can begin to see greater success in the things that you care most about in life. What's that going to look like for you in your, your uh, world, in your health life? You know, physical health and mental health and emotional health. What is it going to look like for you to love God passionately in those ways? and rest and stress and play and boundary setting and work-life balance and all that. What is it gonna look like for you to love God in the world in which you serve, whether at work or at home with your family or in life or as you volunteer? What is it gonna look like for you to love God in the way that you go about being a student at school? What is it going to look like for you to love God in all in your relationships and your family and being a spouse and being a parent and being a friend and being a colleague? What is it going to look like for you to live that passionate devotion to God in all of those areas of life? And who's going to walk with you this year in that as a mentor, as a somebody who provides advice, somebody who cheers you on as a traveling companion who will join you in the journey of leaning into a passionate devotion to God, which makes him the center and priority of everything so that in entering into a relationship with him, you can begin to see the change that gets worked out in you. That right there, friends, is life's greatest resolution. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that all too often uh, we try to make life a self-help program, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, try harder. Uh, And we've generally seen dismal results in that. God, would you teach us to shift our focus to turn our attention first on you, making you the center and the priority of everything, leaning in with a passionate devotion to knowing you and loving you, living in relationship with you and following you and serving you in the ways that you invite us to. And then to trust that you will change us and give us wisdom and guide us in the direction so that we can begin with your help to steer the ship towards the place that you always wanted us to go. We trust you to lead us in that way in 2019. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.